Roughly 4 million athletes in the U.S. experience some sort of traumatic brain injury every year, and several hundred thousand are diagnosed with a clinical syndrome of concussion. Earlier in the 2016 season, Carolina Panther quarterback Cam Newton developed a concussion in the second half of a loss to the Atlanta Falcons, and he had to sit out for several days at that time. These types of quote-unquote concussion protocols are designed to prevent any further kind of immediate injury, but probably don't prevent the long-term consequences of repeated concussive injuries. Most neurologists believe in this two-hit hypothesis where, in the immediate post-concussive period, a second repeated head insult could eventually result in such profound cerebral edema as to cause death. The quote, second impact syndrome is the reason coaches pull players off the field after a significant head injury or at least it should be the reason coaches bench their players following mild TBI. Second impact syndrome refers to the exponentially more devastating effect of a second head injury, which shortly follows the initial head insult. And the second head injury need not involve the cranium, sometimes just a spinal cord injury, and it is often of much milder impulse. But it's enough to catalyze a chain reaction that can leave the players significantly disabled, and sometimes result in death. According to one of the reviews on this subject, McClendon and colleagues described 17 football players with second impact syndrome. Although the numbers were small, the results were staggering. Patients younger than 20 with two repeated head injuries were more likely to have more disabling long-term consequences of the injury when compared to patients who had their injury over the age of 20. Six patients died within hours or days of second impact syndrome, always due to a diffuse cerebral edema. Among survivors, those who did poorly also demonstrated significant cerebral edema on neuroimaging. And some players, four, did just fine and had no long-term sequelae. But given the risk of dying is greater than the risk of surviving with minimal consequences, I think you'd have to be crazy not to pull your player out of the game if concussion is suspected or recognized. And this begs the question, when can you return to play? Some players in this study by McClendon developed their second hit up to four weeks after the initial insult. So the AAN put together a practice parameter in 2013 to address these and other vital issues. The strongest evidence presented by this panel indicated that all players suspected of concussion be evaluated by a healthcare provider to determine if return to play is even advisable that same day. The expert panel also recommended against allowing a player to return to play if the concussion has not resolved, even days or weeks later, which may require the use of neurocognitive testing. The concept of graded physical activity, where players gradually resume physical and cognitive activity and may be removed from activity should symptoms worsen, has been recommended by experts as well, but evidence supporting this practice is currently limited. It's interesting because we believe that concussion is underdiagnosed, especially in sports where players are often encouraged to get back on the field and to continue to play. According to one report, 92% of concussions are unrecognized and undertreated. The NFL has been trying to combat this by... Uh, being more attentive to the number of head injuries during their practices and games. From 2014 to 2015, the NFL reported increase in number of concussions diagnosed by 58%, an increase that had been unprecedented in the past decade. Most occurred during games, and a minority, less than 10%, occurred during practice, probably because of the reduction in the number of full-contact practices these days. But what are the consequences for our patients, who are these football players? And not just the football players, but lacrosse players, soccer players, and basketball players, and every other athlete. 
In this week's episode on brainwaves, we talk about concussion and the post-concussive syndrome and the long-term consequences, which have now been termed chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Historically, I think we can attribute the first clinically recognized syndrome of chronic traumatic encephalopathy to the state of punch-drunk boxing, when boxers would get hit so hard that they would eventually lose consciousness repeatedly and eventually develop Parkinsonian symptoms, psychiatric disturbances, things like headaches and depression, often chronic fatigue, irritability and impulse control. Actually, the term chronic traumatic encephalopathy was coined in 1940 by Bowman and Blau when the authors described the case of a 28-year-old boxer whose wife reported that for the two previous years, the patient had exhibited increasingly childish behavior, depression, paranoia, and many other psychiatric symptoms. He complained to physicians that he was being poisoned, stalked, and lied to. Initially, Bowman and Blau attributed his condition to the term traumatic encephalopathy, but the fact that he did not make any substantial improvement over the next 18 months led to the addition of chronic to the term, making it chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And although there are a multitude of symptoms associated with chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, current research indicates that this syndrome is characterized by one of two major types of clinical presentations. There's a behavior or mood variant, characterized by bouts of extreme irritability and depression, and a cognitive variant that usually supersedes the behavior variant. And although there have been many anecdotal reports of NFL players having earlier dementia or cognitive decline with associated psychiatric manifestations. Much of our recent understanding into CTE didn't emerge until Dr. Bennett Omalu published his seminal paper in 2005, first demonstrating that CTE was actually a progressive tauopathy and had been associated with increased levels of aberrant protein buildup within the central nervous system. At the time, Dr. Omalu was working at the University of Pittsburgh, where he published a single-case report of an NFL player who had been retired for the past 12 years but that player had developed the classic symptoms of cognitive impairment and mood instability in the years building up to his death ultimately from a myocardial infarction. At autopsy, Omalu and his colleagues found a diffuse neocortical amyloid deposition and some tangles with tau-positive neuritic threads. This was met with some reservation by the NFL and colleagues of Omalu, but in 2006, Omalu and his colleagues presented a second case of another retired NFL player, who had a very similar premorbid clinical syndrome. Similarly, the autopsy findings demonstrated a diffuse tau-positive neurofibrillary tangle deposition throughout the cortex and pallor of the substantia nigra in the absence of both atrophy and amyloid plaques. Another four years later, Amalu presented another case. So together, these findings startled the community of neurologists and neuropathologists like Omalu and his colleagues. And since Omalu's original histopathologic work, there have been multiple subsequent studies to characterize the histomorphology of CTE, as well as attempts to use imaging techniques like PET scanning to identify premorbid patterns and provide diagnostic clues in the absence of a tissue diagnosis for living patients. The mechanism of the underlying injury is still a subject of much research, although it's now much more widely accepted. But the NFL hadn't been neglecting their players this entire time. Perhaps the first safety standards for football helmets were designed in 1973 by the National Operating Committee on the standards for athletic equipment to be used in football. 20 years later, as there are more reported cases of traumatic head injury, the NFL Committee on Mild Traumatic Brain Injury was founded. 
Another 11 years later, Dr. Amalu and his colleagues would describe the first pathologic findings of CTE in an NFL player. It also makes me wonder, why are we recognizing these complications all of a sudden? It's not as if football was invented recently and we're witnessing the side effects 10 or 20 years later. The first American football game took place between Rutgers and Princeton in 1869, and the NFL was founded in 1920, almost 100 years ago. If CTE is a delayed consequence of football and other contact sports, someone would have reported this before 2005 among non-boxing athletes, but it really wasn't reported. Of course, there were case reports and speculations dating back to the 1890s, where players were advised to avoid repeated head injuries in order to prevent, quote, traumatic insanity, but this was far from widely accepted. Some speculate that the low incidence of CTE before the 1990s and early 2000s may be due to the low number of players who began to participate in football at a young age. Football really was an adult sport for many decades. More likely, it had something to do with the relatively infrequent number of head-to-head contact injuries before the invention of the present-day football helmet, which makes many players feel nearly invincible. The first helmet, made entirely of leather, was put to use in an 1893 Army-Navy game. However, the use of helmets would not be required by any professional American football organization until the 1930s, when college football mandated their use among players in 1939 and the NFL in 1943. Plastic was incorporated into the helmet structure about this time, but these remained brittle, so high-impulse head contact probably didn't pick up just yet. A precursor to the modern-day face mask was integrated into the 1955 helmet designed by G.E. Morgan, and finally, in 1971, the sports company Riddle received a patent for, quote, micro-fit helmets made of plastic with inner cushions that could be inflated like miniature airbags in order to sustain high-impulse blows. Since then, we really haven't made too many modifications, and I bet this has a lot to do with why we only started noticing symptoms of CTE in the 1990s, a convenient 20 years after the implementation of these protective devices. But there are still a lot of questions out there that have been unanswered even according to some experts. Is it the intensity of each hit? Is it the number of hits sustained? Or is it the frequency? Maybe it's the location and the types of coup-counter-coup injuries that are sustained by the brain? Or a combination thereof that really contributes to the development of CTE and long-term consequences? One study of helmet-based accelerometry showed collegiate players have upwards of a thousand substantial head hits every season. The number of recurrent concussions does have consequences, and this has been quantitated in a report by Guskovics and colleagues from 2005, the same year Omalu published his original findings. These investigators distributed a questionnaire to former NFL players and found that two-thirds of players had sustained a single concussion at at least one point during their career, with a quarter of players sustaining three or more concussions. Among those with three or more concussions, the odds of them being diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment was five times greater than that of players without any concussions, and these players were three times more likely to be depressed. The Boston University group really has done a great job evaluating post-concussive injury to the NFL players. In their DETECT cohort for diagnosing and evaluating traumatic encephalopathy using clinical tests, 42 former NFL players ages 40 to 69 underwent a number of neurological and psychiatric batteries to assess for cognitive dysfunction, specifically related to contact injuries. The investigators compared cognitive profiles between patients whose age at first exposure to contact football was less than 12 years to players whose age at first exposure was older than 12 years. To ensure no finding was discovered by chance, 
they evaluated patients using a number of unique batteries. First, the Wisconsin Card Sort Test, which is a widely accepted means of examining executive function, response inhibition, perseveration, and strategic planning. Second, the Neuropsychological Assessment Battery List Learning Test, NAB-LL for short, which evaluates episodic memory that can be impaired in patients with TBI and neurodegenerative disorders. And third, the Wide Range Achievement Test, or RAT-4, which verbally determines a patient's IQ. The investigators' results, patients who were exposed to contact football before the age of 12 did significantly worse than patients who began football after 12 years of age in all domains of cognitive assessment, despite their educational status and the duration of total contact sports exposure. We're talking every single assessment conducted. So it's not simply the number of years of contact sports which increases risk of cognitive dysfunction, which we know, but perhaps more importantly, it's the age at which you start to engage in contact sports that can impact brain function. And these investigators discovered this in a 42-patient cohort. So next time a parent comes to you and says vaccines cause autism, but they want their six-year-old to play peewee football, you've got to set the record straight with them. So all this being said, am I really going to stop watching the Saints on Sundays? Probably not. But I've known some people who've reacted to this impressive surge of medicine in the media, and they're no longer joining me for beer and wings. What I can do instead is hope that parents, coaches, and the multi-billion dollar enterprises like the NFL will continue to appropriately educate their children, their players, and employees about the risks and benefits of this great American pastime. And I hope that by disseminating more information on the subject, like this little podcast I put out, more and more support will be drawn to these efforts. So spread the word. Jim Sigler here for Brainwaves, and I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to Brainwaves today. If you like what you just heard, you can find more related material on the web at brainwaves.me or find us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio. Feel free to contact us at bweditorialboard at gmail.com. Be sure to check out our iTunes archive for older episodes. This episode was produced by Jim Siegler. Music by Andy Cohen. I'm Erica Mejia. Join us next time for another edition of Brainwaves. Waves.